0: We're just going to jump in and read. It's a long text, so stay with me. I'm going to read all the way through it, and then we'll come back and kind of talk through all that is going on here. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your master's not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord out of 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3. You know, fortunately for me, um, there are zero controversial topics or (laughs) hot-button issues in today's text. This is going to be a piece of cake. Um, You know, there's kind of a joke, actually, in the Ethos office that um, anytime we come to a text that seems to have some sort of controversy or, or, or touchiness to it, you know, that... Somehow, mysteriously, Dave is always unavailable to preach, and it always comes down on my shoulders, and I get to be the guy. So Dave, thank you very much. really appreciate that. Um, Here's the thing. I'm going to do my best to walk through this text in a way that helps us understand Peter's heart for his readers, but more importantly, I want to walk through it in a way that helps us understand and see the heart of Jesus for those of us who are his followers, And and I want to ask for your grace. Um, You know, if I say anything today that that seems offensive or off-putting, you know, I I would just ask, would you come talk to me about it? Like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to stick around after we're done. I'm not going to go hide downstairs. You know, you can come find me, come talk to me, or you can email me at Clayton at (laughs) ethoschurch.org. And I'll get back to you as quickly as I can. Um, No, in all seriousness, I, I mean that. Like, come talk to me, please. Because um, I realize a lot of this is, is, is confusing and hard to understand. And so I ask for your grace. Please come talk to me if there's anything uh, that is unclear or confusing. As we walk through this text, I think it's going to be kind of of the utmost of importance uh, for us to understand the purpose for which Peter is writing the things that he's writing. And uh, I want us to begin by saying what this text is not. Okay, this text is not Peter's manifesto on slavery. Or maybe more importantly for us in our context, this is not Peter's manifesto on systemic racism of the type that has existed in our country since its earliest of days. Now, although Peter will use a word that can be translated as slaves, he is not addressing the issue of slavery at large. This is not Peter's manifesto on slavery. This is also not Peter's manifesto on gender roles, or more specifically, the roles of husbands and wives. Although Peter will address husbands and wives, and the Bible does speak very clearly to the the created order when it comes to the different genders and how they relate to one another, this is not what Peter is doing here. He's not going to appeal to the created order. He's not talking to that specifically. It's not his manifesto on gender roles. So what is this text? You know, I don't think we need to look any further than last week's text to understand Peter's purpose in what he's writing. You know, last week uh, in chapter two, verse 12, we read this verse. It says, Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, Peter is writing to Christians, followers of Jesus in the first century, around 62, 64 A.D., These are followers of Jesus who were kind of scattered across uh, what is today modern Turkey. And he is talking to them as residents of the Roman Empire. And he is giving them this instruction to live such good lives. Now, just before he gave this instruction, you may remember uh, back in chapter two a couple of weeks ago, he has spoken these words of identity over his readers. Dave talked about this a couple weeks ago. He says, he says these things like, hey, listen, you are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people. These are words of identity that are true about all followers of Jesus, regardless of time or place. It doesn't matter what country you live in today. If you live in the United States or in Canada or in Germany or in Syria or in North Korea or South Korea or Afghanistan or England, he says, listen. these words are true about you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen people. And then he's going to follow these words of identity with this instruction to live such good lives. In other words, he's saying, you are a nation of priests and you are free. Now use your freedom then to bring glory to God. Live a life that is so attractive that although those outside of the faith may not understand you and they may even accuse you of doing evil, They will see the goodness of your life and they will know without a shadow of a doubt that the one you follow is good. And he's going to use all of these verses that I've read this morning to explain to his readers what this good life actually looks like in their context. It's as if verse 12 is kind of his thesis statement and that all the verses that follow is him getting down into the weeds. Here's how you live the good life as residents, and even as citizens of the Roman Empire and all the societal structure that it brings with it. You see, the Roman Empire had a very clear societal structure and had a very clear value system. You see, the flourishing of the empire was paramount. And the flourishing of the empire was accomplished by maintaining order. And that order was built around the Roman household, or this Greek word oikos. It was central to their understanding of how society functioned. And Peter is going to address that household structure. And he's going to walk through all the things that he's saying about the good life in a very clear order. First, he is going to address what it meant for them to relate to the one thing they all understood, and that was the Roman Empire. He's gonna start big picture. He's gonna say, hey, submit yourselves, and this is what it looks like in relation to the empire. And then he's gonna come all the way down and he's gonna start speaking to certain individuals related to the circumstances that they find themselves in. And he starts in the most unexpected place. He starts at the very bottom of the totem pole in the Roman Empire hierarchy. He starts with slaves and he addresses them first. And then he kind of works his way up the ladder. Then he speaks to wives And then he speaks to husbands. And then in chapter three, verse eight, which we'll look at next week, he zooms out and he begins to speak to everyone. And so we're going to walk through this text in much the same way that Peter wrote it. And we're going to see from the outset that from the very first verse that we read, that what Peter is after is he wants his readers to understand what it looks like to walk through this world with the heart and the posture of Jesus. We're going to see the word that he uses to describe this posture is the word submit. That as followers of Jesus, as we walk through this world just as our leader did, that we are to do that with a heart that is submissive. And so starting in verse 13, this is what Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every. Human authority. Now, uh, this word "human authority." Some of your Bibles may have "human institution." Uh, uh, some some Bibles say "to human creation" or "human creature," and those words are all kind of closely related. What Peter is saying is, "Hey, listen, there are certain structures of hierarchy and authority that are in place that humans have created." He goes, "But ultimately, those are from God, and what I want you to do is to submit yourself, whether it's to the emperor." or to the governors that he sends out, I want you to submit yourself to those governing authorities. Now, this word submission and submitting to governing authorities, it is something that we see all throughout the Bible. It is not just here in 1 Peter. Uh, in one of the most common passages of Romans chapter 13, that's where the apostle Paul will deal with this idea. But I was shocked this week. It was like a gift from God. I'm actually reading through Exodus right now, my personal reading, and I was in chapter 22 on Thursday morning, and I came across this verse, Exodus 22, verse 28, For God speaks to Moses and he says, hey, do not revile God or curse the ruler of your people. I was shocked to see that right at the very beginning when God is gathering together a group of people to bear his name, the nation of Israel, one of the commands that he gave them at the very outset is, hey, don't revile me and don't curse the ruler of your people. You see, really, this shouldn't surprise us too much because God is a God of order, not of chaos. We see this in the creation story. He takes chaos and he brings order to it and beauty. You see, anarchy, violent revolt, rioting, on a more basic level, slander, all of these things promote chaos. And God longs for his people to be a people of order, not a people of chaos because he is a God of order. So what does it mean for us to submit? What does it mean for us to submit to governing authorities. Well, the word submission is this Greek word, hupotasso, and it literally means to place oneself under whatever it is you're submitting to. And it is a voluntary thing. It is not a forced thing. We talked about this when we walked through Ephesians 5 last year. You can go back and listen to that podcast as well if you want to. It's on husbands and wives. The word submission means to place oneself under, but here's something we need to understand, and this is crucial. Please hear me on this. Submission is not synonymous with obedience. Submission is not synonymous with obedience. They don't mean the same thing. I love the way one Christian writer puts it. He says, submission doesn't mean merely blind obedience, but it has to do with recognizing the way that God has ordered society and having respect for that order, having respect for the institution of the government and not using our Christianity as an excuse to ignore or rebel against its normal commands. And so, again, we see this all through the text, that God wants his people to be submissive to the government, but this immediately stirs up some tension in almost all of us, right? Because we go, now, wait a minute. What what about a corrupt government? What about an ungodly government? What about an oppressive regime or totalitarian regime? what about those governments? What do we do with that? We know we've said that all through Scripture, God requires submission to human authorities, but we would be remiss not to take note of all the places where God's people have disobeyed the authorities that be while still being submissive. Remember, obedience and submission are not synonyms. All through the, the, the word of God, you see these examples of the people of God being, being disobedient to the authorities while still being submissive. You go the very beginning again in the book of Exodus. You have the people of Israel who are uh, subjected to slavery in Egypt and God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh to ask for their freedom. Repeatedly, Pharaoh says, no, I will not let you go. Don't ask me again. But what does, what does Moses do every time? <laughs> he disobeys. But I want you to notice what happens, that when Pharaoh, the ruling authority, says no, Israel does not incite riot. They do not incite war. They do not revolt against the government. No, they keep going to him and asking him. It is not until Pharaoh says go that the Israelites go. They disobey, but they still submit. We see this throughout the Old Testament. I think one of my favorite examples is in Daniel chapter three. You have these three characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are Israelites who are being held in captivity in the, in the empire of Babylon. And the king of that empire, the emperor, says, Hey, I want everyone to bow down and pray to and worship this idol that has just been built for me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down, they disobey the order of the king. But then what do they do when they get caught? They submit. They go, and they are thrown into a fiery furnace. It's an incredible story of God's salvation. If you want to read that, go to Daniel 3. But you see the pattern. They disobey, then they submit. We see this with Daniel himself in Daniel chapter 6. The emperor has said, hey, I don't want anyone praying to any other God except to me. And then Daniel is caught on his knees praying to God Almighty. He is busted. He disobeys, and then he submits, and he's thrown into a lion's den. He disobeys, and then he submits. But perhaps the most radical place we see this is with our Lord himself, Jesus. Jesus stepped into a religious authoritarian system in society and he repeatedly, repeatedly speaks against the religious structures that are in place. He disobeys their command saying, hey, don't teach such things, don't teach such things." But Jesus keeps teaching it to the point where he walks into the temple, the place where they had all power, and he turns over their tables of money-making. Jesus disobeys the religious authority of his day that was in place. But then what does Jesus do when all the weight of that religious authority and the Roman Empire comes down upon him? He submits himself even unto death. Jesus, the one who had all power, who could have done anything, he disobeys and then he submits. And then, of course, you see Peter, the life of Peter himself. <laughs> I love the example of Peter because Peter was there the night that Jesus was being arrested. And you may remember what Peter did, you know the, The religious leaders and a bunch of soldiers show up to take Jesus in custody, and Peter pulls out his sword, and he's ready to go to war, and Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. I've not come to lead a rebellion or a revolt. And I love it because you see the transformation in Peter's life because he begins to understand what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. It's a picture of submission. You get to Acts chapter four, and the story of the church is unfolding. And Peter and John are standing before the courts of the day and they tell them, they say, hey, listen, you are not to teach this name Jesus. Don't preach about Jesus. These are the governing authorities commanding them not to do it. I love Peter and John. They say, hey, you judge for yourself. What is right? Whether we should obey God or man, we will obey God. And so they go out and they disobey the authorities. And in the very next chapter, you find Peter and all the apostles in the temple courts proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Well, guess what happens? The authorities come down on them. And guess what they do? They don't revolt. They don't rebel. They submit. They disobey. And then they submit. And I love in chapter five, it says Peter and the apostles say, hey, listen, we can't stop. There's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved. It is the name of Jesus and we're gonna keep proclaiming it. Do to us as you will. <laughs> and then they are flogged by the authorities and they walk away rejoicing because they are kind of worthy of suffering with Jesus. Disobedience and then submission. Peter, the man who wrote this letter, would eventually be murdered because of his belief in Jesus as Lord. He would continue to disobey and pronounce the name of Jesus as supreme, and he would submit to whatever came his way because of that pronouncement. You see, there is a difference between revolt, riot, anarchy. There's a difference in those things, in the idea of civil disobedience, You see, civil disobedience takes the posture of Jesus' submission, it disobeys, but it understands all the consequence that may come with with being disobedient, but it still chooses to submit. This was how Christianity began to flourish in the Roman Empire. See, Nero, who was emperor when Peter wrote these words, he would incite the first great persecution against Christians. And he would demand that Christians... Declare that Caesar is Lord. Declare that Caesar is Lord or you will be fed to the lions. And thousands and thousands of Christians would proclaim Jesus as Lord and then they would pray for their murderers as they submitted to their consequence of death. This was the powerful picture of the radical love of Jesus. This is what Peter was getting at when he said, Submit to the authorities. Now, what does this mean for us? How do we submit? You know, if we're sitting in this room and you are a resident and or citizen of the United States, you know that we find ourselves in a governmental system that is slightly different than that of the Roman Empire. There are many of in the world who cannot say that. But we find ourselves in a governmental system that has chosen to give a voice to the people who live there. And the reality is, is that our government is set up to give us a voice, and the beautiful thing about that is that it means that for us to submit to our government means that we have to think about how we are going to use our voice. Here's what I mean by we have a voice. We have the ability to vote. We have the ability to, to petition. We have the ability to lobby. We have the ability to call our senators. I mean, we saw an example of that this week, right? Where in our nation, we saw children, 2,300 children being separated from their parents. And I love seeing the response. I got emails from some of you saying, hey, what can we do to help these children? I got emails from some of you saying, hey, have you called your senator yet? And here's what I loved on Wednesday. I see the president of our nation sign an executive order so that this won't happen anymore. This was an example of people in our nation using their voice. Now, here's the thing. We, to submit to our system means that we choose to use our voice, but we have a choice to make. How will you use your voice? This is, this is, this is touchy, I know. It kind of honestly makes me sad because I know that there are very few things that could probably stir up division in our church the way politics do. And I just want to tell you right now, There are people sitting beside you, in front of you, and behind you that voted differently than you, that feel differently than you. And our nation watches us as followers of Jesus. How will you use your freedom? How will you use your freedom as a follower of Jesus? How will you use your voice? Will you use your voice in a way that promotes peace, kindness, order, gentleness, submission, and justice, just like Jesus did? Or will you take to social media and use your voice to lambast and curse and slander whoever it is that may be in power at any given time? How will you use your voice as a follower of Jesus? Because it affects your heart. It affects the image of Jesus to the people around you. It affects the unity of our body as a church family. How will we use our voice Because in our country, to submit to the government means that you have the right to use your voice. Now here's the thing, there are some in our nation who do not have a voice. And the beautiful thing is that we have the right to advocate for those people. And so in our freedom, I think the question that Peter is asking is, hey, will you use your voice to promote slander? Will you use your voice to promote anarchy? Or will you use your voice to promote the way of Jesus, the submission and gentle and quiet spirit of our Lord? And so this is what Peter's getting at. Hey, submit yourselves to the governing authorities because this is the posture of Jesus. Now, the very next thing Peter is gonna get into is this idea of slaves and masters. In verse 18, he's gonna say, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. Now, here again, I know this is a very touchy subject. I wanna just kinda say what I said at the very beginning. What Peter is about to write is not his manifesto on the issue of slavery. Slavery. Uh, I think it's, it's really interesting that Peter is actually writing. What he's writing is written to the slaves themselves, which is significant on multiple levels. Uh, most writers of Peter's uh, position would not have even addressed, it, addressed slaves in their society. And yet it's also significant to think about, you know, what does, who he's writing to, um, how does that impact what he's writing? You know, I think about a time in my life, uh, I was living in Eugene, Oregon, and I had kind of three different areas of influence I was working with homeless teenagers where I was getting to teach and model the ways of Jesus. I was also a part of a kind of middle-class white church uh, where I got to teach and speak in small groups and house churches. And I was also a part of a campus ministry that was largely made up of Asian students who were studying at the University of Oregon. And on any given week, I would find myself teaching in all three of those contexts, homeless teenagers, middle-class, mostly white church, Asian uh, international students at the University of Oregon, the way that I taught and the things that I said were different depending upon the context. When I began to sense in the hearts of those in the church I was a part of that there was a lack of regard for the marginalized, I would teach to them about what it means as a follower of Jesus to work for justice and to work for those who are marginalized and poor. I did not teach that to the homeless teenagers I was speaking to. I spoke to them about God's love for them. I spoke to them about how the goodness of the gospel can impact their lives right where they are because the audience makes a difference. And so Peter is going to speak to these slaves. Now we have to wonder, you know, what Peter might've said differently if he was writing to a slave owner. We don't have such a letter from Peter. However, we do have a letter such as this from the Apostle Paul. If you wanna know what he says, go read the book of Philemon. It is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a slave owner in the Roman Empire, and he will appeal to Philemon's heart for the freedom of his slave, Onesimus. I encourage you to go read that. But here's a couple of things that we see in what Peter writes here, a couple of interesting things. One is the word that Peter uses to address these slaves. Now, our English translation uses the word slaves. It kind of uses the same word in English in verse 18 as it uses in verse 16. In verse 16, Peter says, hey, you are slaves to God. You are slaves to nobody on this earth. Your master, your only master is God Almighty. And in verse 16, he uses the Greek word doulos. In verse 18, he's gonna use a completely different word to address these slaves. The word that he uses literally translates as household servant, household servant. Now, this title could include anything from, you know, what they would call common slaves, but it could also include household managers or doctors or teachers or musicians or craftsmen. You see, the the empire was kind of built on the back of slavery. Some scholars estimate that at the time Peter was writing, there were some 60 million slaves in the empire of Rome. You see, the citizens of Rome kind of had this idea that, hey, there's no point in being the rulers of the world and doing your own work. Let the slaves do that and the citizens will take it easy. Now, when it comes to the culture of slavery, uh, I think uh, one Christian scholar kind of sums it up really well. I'm just gonna read to you this quote of how he describes it. He says, it would be wrong to think that the situation of slaves in the Roman Empire was always wretched and unhappy and that they were always treated with cruelty. Many slaves were loved and trusted members of the family, but one, listen to this, one great inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In Roman law, a slave was not a person, but a thing, and had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. For that reason, there could be no such thing as justice where a slave was concerned. Aristotle, Aristotle writes there can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things, indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet toward a slave as a slave, for a master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. This was the mindset of the average Roman citizen towards a slave. They were just an animated and living tool. Now, Peter is going to address these slaves who find themselves in a situation that, quite, quite frankly, just sucks. They have come to know Jesus as Lord, and yet they find themselves as slaves. And Peter is going to say the same thing to these slaves about their masters that he does to everybody else in the way that they relate to the emperor. He's gonna say, hey, you submit to your master. Just like I've told everybody to submit to the emperor, you submit to your master. But he's going to go on and he's going to explain why. He says, listen, this position that you are in, the circumstance you find yourself in right now, it is not your truest identity. You are part of a royal priesthood. You are part of a holy nation. You are part of a chosen people. This is your true identity and God is your only master. With God as your master, take the posture of Jesus and he will begin to appeal to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, a picture of who Jesus is. He says, listen, Jesus, although he was threatened and he was persecuted and he was beaten, there was no retaliation, there were no threats, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And here's the thing that we know about Jesus is that Jesus did all of this for the sake of others. This is why he goes on to say, he himself bore our sins so that we might die to sins. He's saying, listen, Jesus submitted himself for the sake of others. Now, this is super challenging, but listen to what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, everything you do, every way that you live among these pagans, it is a picture of who Jesus is. We see this in the cross of Jesus where when Jesus dies, In Mark chapter 15, he's hanging on the cross. He has just submitted himself to beating. He submitted himself to death. And as he hangs there dead, a Roman centurion of all people looks at Jesus and says, surely this man was the son of God. He was convicted about the identity of Jesus, not by Jesus' words, but by his posture and by his actions. That because of his great love, he would submit himself to something like that. See, Peter is saying to these slaves, these servants, he's saying, listen, your masters are gonna watch you because they're gonna know that you're following this new Lord and the way that you live will say something to them about who Jesus is. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's gonna write to slaves and he's gonna tell them, hey, if you have opportunity to get your freedom, you take it. But the reality of their circumstance was they had zero rights. They weren't even considered humans. And so Peter is gonna say, hey, listen, here's the power of the gospel of Jesus. He say, listen, the gospel of Jesus is good news to all people, regardless of your lot in life. He says, the identity that Jesus offers you, it does not require your physical freedom before it becomes true of you. He's saying this, listen, even the oppressed, even the most oppressed can find the freedom of Jesus before their oppression has ended. Because the battle for freedom begins in the human heart. Now, this is beautiful, but it is hard. The reality is that the gospel of Jesus is working to overcome oppression in the world, and there will be a day when all of it will cease and all will bow to Jesus. But he says, hey, for now, in the moment that you are in, you can experience the freedom of Jesus regardless of your circumstances, and this is powerful. Now, I really wrestled and struggled to figure out how do we today understand that in our context? What does that say to each one of us? If Peter were writing this letter to us, what would he speak about? And it, is, it pales in comparison, but I think the only parallel I could make is the way that we experience ourselves as employees to our employers. You know, all of you at some point have someone who employs you, an employer. And I know many of you have had bosses and employers, whether they be corporate or individuals that don't treat you fairly, they don't treat you with respect, they don't treat you with dignity. I remember a time in my life I had a job, uh, worked for a man who... Um, He did not create a safe place in the work environment. I remember one day in particular where I said something in front of several other staff members. It was a well-intentioned comment and I was met by a hand on the table and he started chewing me up and down in front of all my other employees. I was hurt. I was scared. I remember I went home and social media didn't exist at the time. What I would have wanted to do is get on Facebook and post about how awful he was. Instead, I went home and I talked to my wife about how awful he was. And I wanted to call all of my friends and tell them how awful he was. And I remember my wife pushing me, she said, Aaron, I think, remember Jesus, he said, hey, you should pray for those who stand against you. And my wife called me into the submission of Jesus and I was reminded to pray for my boss. And so I wonder all of us, will we engage in the water cooler slander and the back channels and the backbiting in order to advance ourselves? Or will we follow the posture of Jesus? allowing ourselves to submit to the order where God has put us. Finally, we come to this last portion of the text where Peter is going to address wives and husbands. And, um, you know, this one also gets very touchy for us. And I want to start in chapter 3, verse 1. Peter begins by saying, the, the language that he uses right at the start is very important. He says, "Wives." In the same way, submit yourselves. Now, he is not referring back to what he addressed to slaves. He's referring back to his thesis statement, chapter 12. He says, hey, live such good lives among the pagans that though they see, them, they may accuse you of doing evil, they'll see your good deeds. Submit yourselves to every human institution. And he's saying, listen, this includes the institution of marriage in the empire that you're living in. Wives, in the same way, Submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, I love what he says next because he says, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. In other words, what Peter is speaking to here, he's talking to women who have become followers of Jesus and their husbands have yet to follow behind them. And he's gonna say to them, hey, listen, let your behavior be your sermon. He says, do this, he says, when they see the purity and the reverence of your life. He's saying, listen, as followers of Jesus, wives, if your husbands don't believe, be committed to them. Don't nag them, don't try to manipulate them, don't browbeat them, but let the beauty of who you are paint a picture for the goodness of who Jesus is. He says, your beauty should not come from your outward adornment. Now, he's not saying, hey, women, don't wear nice clothes, don't wear any jewelry, don't do your hair. It's not what Peter's saying. He's saying, but those things should not be the source of your beauty. Your beauty should come from within. And he'll say, from, from a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, these words, gentle and quiet, have been misused to try to paint a poor picture of what women can and can't do and who they are and who they're not. It's really important that we understand this word, gentle, the majority of the time that it's used in the New Testament, it's used in reference to Jesus. Jesus was gentle. The word quiet, this is not a thing that saying that women shouldn't talk or women can't talk ever know. The word quiet here that Peter uses is the same exact word that the apostle Paul will use in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he's speaking to both men and women. Here's what he says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 11 through 12, speaking to men and women, Paul writes, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, listen to this, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. You see, at the heart of the apostles, their concern is for the souls of those that don't know Jesus. And they're saying, listen, live such gentle and quiet lives among the people that you are around that they will see the goodness of Jesus in you and you will earn their respect and they will see the goodness of Jesus. Now, I need to say something really quick right here. Um, Let's keep moving. I want to deal with Abraham and Sarah. So then Peter keeps going. He says, hey, model yourselves after the women of old, like Sarah. And and this verse could be wildly misunderstood, but it says, you know, this is the way of the holy women of the past, verse five, who put their hope in God. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. Now, I I want to deal with this. This is referring... um, to a story in the book of Genesis. And this is where uh, Abraham and Sarah don't have any children. An angel comes to them and tells them that they're going to have a child and they're both like in their 90s. I mean, they're really old. And Sarah hears this and she says, will this, surely, will this be true after I am worn out and my Lord is so old? The word here, Lord, it is, it is a term of respect, a term of honor. It's equivalent to what we would say, sir or mister, And the picture that's being painted is that Sarah had a respect and an honor for her husband. And here's the thing. If you read the story of Sarah and Abraham, you will will see that it was anything but a one-way dictatorship from Abraham to Sarah. Instead, when they can't have a child, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, here, take my servant and have a child with her. This was not God's idea, by the way. This is just Sarah. She wanted Abraham to have a child. So she says, here, sleep with my servant and have a child through her. And Abraham complies. And then when, she, when her servant has a child, Sarah gets jealous and she says, hey, what have you done? She's like, send that servant and her child out of here so she'll stop mistreating me. And Abraham complies. So the picture of Abraham and Sarah is not one where Abraham was heavy-handed and always got his way. What Peter is appealing to is this, this level of respect and honor that she had for her husband. And again, all of this was because he wanted wives with unbelieving husbands to see the goodness of Jesus. Now, I I need to say something really, really important right here. So please, please listen to this. Um, People have used this passage in horrendous ways. They've taken this passage that is written to wives that follows on the heels of words that are written to slaves, where it tells slaves, hey, you know, if, if you submit to a beating that is commendable to God, and they have taken that and they have put it on top of what is being spoken to wives to try to justify a situation where a husband is hurting or beating his wife. And I want you to hear me on this. There is never, ever, ever any circumstance where it is okay for a husband to hit a wife, ever. There is never any circumstance where it is okay for a man to hit a woman, ever. It's nowhere in the Bible. And may God deal with those who try to justify such behavior on his word. And I just want to speak, if you are here today and you're in a situation where you are mistreated, abused, or hit, you don't have to submit to that. And I would encourage you, if if you're in that situation and you need help, come talk to me. Come talk to somebody on our staff and we will bend over backwards to get you the help that you need. That is not what Peter is talking about here. Now, Peter's going to keep going, and he makes it really clear that that's not what he's talking about because he begins to address the husbands. He uses the same words in verse 7. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate. He uses the words in the same way because, again, he's appealing back to what he said at the very beginning. He's saying, listen, live such good lives. Submit to human authorities. He's saying, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And then he's gonna say, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, let me just speak into that weaker partner thing because again, it has been fraught with abuse and misuse. Peter is not saying that women are somehow mentally weaker or emotionally weaker or inferior to men. And as I thought about how do I talk about what Peter meant here, I actually like interviewed several women in my life this week to try to get their take on this verse. because it'd be easy for me as a man to stay up here and say what I think this verse means. But I was shocked. Every woman that I spoke with, they said, oh, to me that's just speaking to the general truth. We understand that men are generally stronger than women. Now, I know that is not always true, okay? Let me just say something real quick so you know what I believe on this. I have watched my wife push three children out of her body with zero (laughs) anesthesia or medication. I am not that strong. I would not do that. I would cry like a baby. I would ask for the medication every time, hands down. My wife is stronger than me in that regard. But I'll tell you what, I would accept an arm wrestling challenge from my wife any day of the week, every single day, all day long. Because I know that I'm physically stronger than her, even though she is a very strong person. And so Peter is just speaking to the general reality that the way that men and women are created is that men in general are stronger than women, but I think he's also speaking to the political and societal situation they were in, and that in the Roman society, men had more power than women. And so I love what Peter says. He says, listen, treat your wives with consideration and respect as the weaker partner. But then this word that he says after that, he says, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Now, in Roman society, women were not heirs. Only, only the sons with the heirs of the estate. And what Peter says here is, hey, I want you to treat your wife as she is a co-heir with you of all the goodness that Jesus has to give. So you see, the heart here of Peter is not trying to promote a situation where husbands get to do whatever they want and wives have to bow cowering before them. No, he's painting this picture of of. Submission and reverence for each other and honor for each other so that even though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God Almighty. This is the picture that Peter is painting. And what it means for us, you know, there are some of you here today who you're you're married to a spouse who is not a believer. I think what Peter would say to you is, hey, listen, don't shame them. Don't browbeat them. Don't manipulate them. Don't guilt them. Instead, love, respect, and honor them so they may see the goodness of Jesus in your life. And it is in this way that they will come to know the saving love of Jesus. You see, the heart of Peter in all of this is that all humanity would know the goodness of Jesus. It all hinges around right in the middle of what he talks about from Isaiah 53 where he says, listen, this is the one we follow. He is the one who bore our sins. He is the one who submitted himself to death for our sake. He is the one that took on all the weight of our brokenness and our pain. He put it upon himself so that the world could know that there is a God in heaven who is full of gracious compassion and love. And he says, if you are my people, you will also take up your cross and you will also follow me in this posture of submission as you walk through this world. This is the heart of this text, not to be misused, but to be understood to paint a picture of the goodness of Jesus. Now the question for us this morning, I'm gonna wrap up now, I know this this has been long, it's just a lot for us to walk through. But the question I want us to kind of wrestle with this morning is there is this reality, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have an immense amount of freedom. There's only one thing, only one being that you live to please and to serve and that is God Almighty because he has given you all. He is your Lord, he is your master and he is a good and gracious Lord. So you have all freedom, but the question we have to ask is we live in a culture that says my individual rights trump everything else. And we kind of have to go, hey, what will I do with the freedom that Jesus gives me? Will I use that? With my first concern being my individual rights, or will my first concern be the glory of God Almighty so that all those around me can know and see the love of Jesus? That's the invitation to us. This would have been a hard thing to hear for the original readers, just like it is a hard thing for us to hear, because we tend to think of ourselves first. And what Peter is saying is no, think of others before yourselves. Now, here's the thing. In life, it is always easier to lead those who are below us. So if you're in a position of authority or power, if you're a boss or an employer, then you've experienced this. It's so much easier to lead others when there's a title after your name that gives you the authority to lead them. What is much harder is to lead those who are above you. And Peter is gonna say, listen, all of us are going to find ourselves in a place at some point where we are on the bottom rung. Well, we are at the bottom. And what Peter is speaking to, he's saying, listen, this is how you lead. How you exert your freedom will depend how you lead from the bottom and how you can change what is happening at the top. Because when we live lives of submission at the bottom, then things begin to change radically at the top. This is born true throughout the history of Christianity. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to communion with one another. We're going to come to the table and we're going to take the cup We're going to take the bread, and it is this reminder, this very picture of the radical submission of Jesus. And we take it every week to remind us of who we are, Jesus' blood poured out, his body given, as he invites us to take up our cross and submit to one another out of reverence for him. Now, as we do that, here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to get with two or three people. And I want you, if you if you want to discuss, I know we've talked about a lot this morning, so there may be some things turning in you, you want to discuss. Discuss it over the cup and the bread, and be re, be reminded that we are united in Jesus. But also pray with one another and share what is your circumstance in life, and what does it look like for you in that circumstance to follow the posture of Jesus' submission. And then pray for one another that Jesus would be at work through our lives to bring glory to God Almighty, so that our city could see the goodness of Jesus. We're gonna pray for us and then we'll go get communion with one another. Lord, I love you so much and I'm so grateful that you are not a God who sits in a position of authority and tries to use that for your own advantage. But as you tell us in Philippians 2 that Jesus, you emptied yourself of all of that. You came and took on the form of a servant. You submitted yourself to humanity and ultimately submitted yourself to death so that the world could know that our God is a God of love. Lord Jesus, would you fill us with your spirit as we try to walk with one another in submission, as we try to walk with you in submission. Help us to be a picture of your radical, life-changing love to our city, to our nation, to the world. Come, Lord, come, as we commune with you, our hearts are yours. It's in your name we pray, amen.